Hey guys, welcome back. Chris Bircher, Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom, episode 117, Sexual and Asexual Reproduction. I've had several people comment on my, what I've summarized sort of really briefly in the past of this, uh, the evolution of sexual reproduction. And this, of course, is in the context, uh, so I'm going to do an episode about it. Uh, And it's in the context of the acid test and sort of like looking at the idea that, well, sexual reproduction sort of dominates every organism that's evolved recently, uh, our near ancestors, if you will. And so from that, we could determine that, you know, evolution selects for the fit state of sexual reproduction versus asexual reproduction. You don't see a whole lot of evolution happening. Well, that's not true. If you look at asexual reproduction in the context of viruses and bacteria and things like that, evolution is happening pretty fast. So both strategies are great. It's just that in the mammals and reptiles and birds and sort of the more derived evolutionary path, sexual selection has been extremely successful, which we can correlate or, you know, sort of uh, associate with a, a, a level of fitness. And anyway... In the context of the acid test and evolution and, and what I've been talking about recently, the idea of love and connectivity, the real quest uh, in this episode is to sort of illustrate my thinking behind how sexual reproduction and love are linked. Now, I want to preface all this with saying <laughs> I think humans sort of, especially today, have a really skewed version of love and sex and, and what all that means and um, I'm myself of guilty of sort of thinking that you can't have sexual reproduction without love and you need this familial structure. And, you know, there's lots of people in the polyamorous community, polyamory community, for example, that are challenging that idea. And certainly not everyone believes that love and sex go hand in hand. But I do think that the idea of a familial unit is an evolutionary favored condition as far as how it relates to parental care and, of course, sexual reproduction. And then love, one could argue, is like an accessory support idea (laughs) that helps unify that. Now, I'm also of the mind, and not related to any of this stuff, that love is just sort of like uh, an emergent property of energy as interpreted through consciousness, and that gets at sort of like a rock's conscious, conscious, or our monkey's conscious, our squirrel's conscious, our fish conscious, and do they, and, and you know, uh, receive and emanate this energy from the sun in such a way? So there's lots of things going on here, but really what I want to focus on is the the what I like to think about happening associated based on you know the, the dominant ecological paradigms and sort of what we think science tells us about the past, and some speculation, my own speculation, that I think is unique and not necessarily isn't done all the time or certainly is not inside the box. Uh, All right? So let's go. So sexual reproduction was the dominant way life, as we know it on Earth or and or elsewhere, uh, perpetuated itself, right? So there's this like fundamental belief that life wants to live 
but there's also the um, the yin yang sort of confusing opposing force that life is not permanent. So, you know, it is what it is. A cell exists, has life, whatever that means. Does it have conscious consciousness? I don't know. Um, but the first cell exists, and because it's soft, because it's temporary, I don't know, it's going to die. It's born to die. It's inherent in the DNA. You know, it, it ages, and it no longer exists. And so in order to matter, like, so what? So a cell evolves, and it's like, I'm a cell, and I do all this cool stuff, and then it's dead, and nobody ever knew that it was there, and it's just back to rocks and water. Well, for, for whatever reason, and you know, the mechanism that allowed that cell to persist, even though it's going to die, is reproduction. And when it comes to asexual reproduction, or the way things were done for millions of years prior to the evolution of sexual reproduction, the reproduction was just cell division, mitosis, right? That cell, even though it knows it's going to die, or <laughs> I don't know, right? I mean, as, a, as an alternative to death, you know, as a means of colonial per- persistence through time, as the means of passing on its DNA. I mean, if you're DNA, you can easily see where you're like, oh, screw it. Why did we design a container that dies? Well, we're going to have to come up with a backup plan. Uh, let's be able, let's make this container be able to make more containers, copy us, put it in those containers, and then we'll keep living. It'll carry us through time, uh, even though the original one died. Okay, got it. That solved the problem. Uh, why not immortality? I don't know. I don't know. Well, one of the things, one of the arguments against immortality is that the environment's constantly changing, and we'll get to that in a minute. But so cell division just means a cell can copy itself. It makes a copy of its DNA. It puts it in a separate packet. It makes, you know, it, 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 it buds, separates from the, the original, and all of a sudden you got a clone. So now you got two cells where you had one. And, of course, one of the things humans don't really understand is now those two cells reproduce to make four, and those four cells reproduce to make eight. And that's where you get exponential growth. So cell division can happen pretty quickly. And as cells became independent and became single-cell organisms, you know, instead of just this mass of you know, jelly you know, growing on the side of a rock or a, a, a lichen or, or whatever without like um, without specific parts to do specific work, but just this mass of cells was an organism. You know, now uh, at a single organism, theoretically with the development of mitochondria, this energetic thing that could feed the cell and allow it to do things by itself – which probably came from this association of bacteria and algae, what we call blue-green algae, but anyway, whatever. Cells became independent. And now if that cell reproduces, which is an independent animal, you know, like uh, you know, uh, uh, an amoeba, right? A single-celled animal that can move around and can eat and do all the things you do in life. It's got to make more of itself because it's going to die. Well, guess what? It just uses mitosis, and it makes a new cell. And guess what? That new cell is an individual too. We could talk about that for 10 episodes. That's just how it worked for a long time. And that was most everything that you saw. Bacteria, single-celled organisms, 
Um, and that, and that's the way things went. And they made a whole lot of them, and they pro- probably cooperated to work together. But the interesting thing about sexual reproduction, the good part about it is you can make real uh, more of you real fast. So if there's like a really awesome sandwich over here and one bacteria finds it, they can quickly make tons of other bacteria to eat that sandwich and be like, hey, we're all great, awesome. And then whatever. I mean, I guess numbers were a good thing. And they probably acted in some degrees as, as a community. And we see some organisms today that are single-cell colonial organisms, like I think some jellyfish are even like that, and corals and some other things. So it must have been a, a strategy that worked. It was selected for and it maintained. It was not like we got rid of all these asexually produ- producing organisms. You know, we wouldn't have um, sickness <laughs> if, if that were true. Um, and so that worked all well and good until one day, for whatever reason, just like that, I don't know how it happened, sexual reproduction evolved. And so what that means is now when a cell divides, it was a specialized cell called a gamete, male and female, sexual reproductive cells, very specific, went through multiple cell divisions, made half copies of DNA, and so rendered this new cell unable to exist on its own. It was a sperm or an egg, and it had half the information. In order to complete the sexual reproductive cycle, it had to fuse with an opposing cell from the other, gen- the other gender specific or the other, the other, the other uh, suite, you know, the male and female copy, whatever. It had to fuse with that opposite to make the right number of chromosomes, the right number of genes, and then it would develop into a new organism. And what, what that really means is... A couple of things. Because there's multiple divisions, there's, mo- there's more chance for the mutations that people say, the, the errors that happen in DNA replication that would lead to diversity under asexual reproduction. So you got to think about asexual reproduction. You're making clones, basically, except for some rare chance that something weird happened in the laying down of the base pairs. So very little variation happened. It was slow. It took a lot of time, and it was random. But what that also meant is you made a bunch of little U's. So going back to that sandwich idea, you're digging on the sandwich, you reproduce and make a whole bunch of kids. Guess what? They're now competing with you for that sandwich. That can be a bad thing. They can basically outcompete you and lead to your death, which is the, the biggest criticism with asexual reproduction is there's no variation, which is bad for biodiversity. But before we even knew that was a good thing, maybe you don't believe it's a good thing. Um, it's certainly bad for competition. Um, and even though competition is supposed to do all these wonderful things, all it ended up doing with respect to sexual, asexual reproduction is potentially killing you and rendering you with nothing to eat or no resources. So sexual reproduction added more variation. It guaranteed variation because now we've got differing, due to a couple of weird things that happen in the, in the replication of the DNA, you get crossing over, you get the borrowing of information, and as that new zygote, the fused sperm and egg or pollen and ova, develop, they have information from two different individuals that's recombining to make a third different individual, different from either parent, carrying some similarities. Now, what this allowed for was more variation. And the whole purpose, well... Presumably, a a theoretical purpose of this was, again, to perpetuate life because life couldn't be perpetual on its own. 
But now you have a greater propensity to respond to changing environmental conditions. And it makes sense that these things would evolve like this with asexual dominating the first couple billion years of life and then sexual shifting because our environment was probably fairly consistent and slow to change early on. A molten ball of, you know, burning liquid rock, you know, and that and, 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 and that was like that for millions of years, right? So there wasn't a whole lot of environmental variation early on. That, as organisms modified the environment, as the environment cooled, as more things happened, as more molecules were created, as more atoms pounded together and created new elements, things change. And so now we're in the situation where not only are we competing with ourselves and resources might potentially be starting to become limiting as every surface of the planet is covered in a bacteria or whatever, we're also in an environment that's going to change and we need to be able to change with it. And that's the magic of sexual reproduction is it creates a lot of opportunity for variance, variation in individuals, variation in species that are going to be better or worse suited for the environment. So if you've got a particularly uh, fat and furry species of rodent, they can go north and be colder versus a particularly sparsely haired and skinny rodent that may be better off in the tropics. And so we have the ability to acclimate and eventually adapt to broadening environments. And so sexual reproduction led to lots of variation. It led to it lead, led to speciation and the creation of new species and biodiversity and sort of the the explosion of life as we know it. And again, because it dominates, we have to so we can we can make a safe assumption, it could be wrong, of course, that sexual reproduction is fit in the world today as we know it and it dominates you know life and how we live uh, and there's a again asexual reproduction also crazy super successful also evolving also doing a lot of things slower create creates competitors and the number of niches if you will is is a little more limited um, and certainly the the occurrence of asexual reproduction in more derived organisms more complex organisms isn't a thing. And so it just didn't work anymore. That's one way to look at it. So that's pretty cool, right? And now what came with this? So as we had to, now instead of just do, being a selfish and, and look at it in the context of the acid test and climate change and the world as we know it and isolation and individualism versus community and all those things, right? Now we're forced to, to interact in order to perpetuate our genes. I can't make more me without a female human being or at least the female gonads, gametes. I need an egg, a human egg cell to combine with my sperm cells in order to perpetuate my life. Okay, how's that going to work? Well, rape, right? Okay, but you know, that isn't... (laughs) Maybe for a time, that's how it happened. Maybe among some species, that's still how it happens. Certainly, I think that's probably how it was at first. But then, you know, you can see how sexual reproduction was a gateway to human collaboration 
structure, societies, cultures, villages, families, all of that, right? Social interaction could be argued is a result of the shift from asexual reproduction to sexual reproduction. And so if that's true, if we want to follow that lead, we have to assume that lots of habits, beliefs, behaviors were associated with that. And it's not hard to argue, and many people do, that the familial structure, our getting along, interacting, language, you know, art, all comes down to our need to interact because we need to reproduce. And I don't want to have that discussion today, but I do want to use that argument to sort of support the idea that love and connectivity among humans is probably related to this shift and probably evolved along with, in concert with, the way sexual reproduction evolved. And think about all the things that go with it. Sexual dimorphism. Some animals, the boys look different from the girls for lots of different reasons. Some don't. Parental care. Some families, like, you know, um, seahorses and kangaroos, I think, and maybe not kangaroos. Some, some animals, the, the males raise the baby. Some animals, females raise the babies. There's definitely trends. We don't know what happened with human cultures far back, but we tend to assume that, you know, that we're maternal and that mamas raise the babies and daddies get the, the whatever. Now we've got fluid gender, which I think we've always had. We've just sort of now admitted that it's part of the human culture as well. I'm not going to hide anymore. Um, and so there's a, there's a complex uh, social and individual behavior associated with us getting along and interacting. And certainly the favored condition, the more fit environmental condition is that we cooperate and not compete, that we get along and not fight, right? I do not see where fighting competition, a single alpha male dominating, you know, none of these things make any sense with passing on diverse genes. And that will be a goal of sexual reproduction. Speciation is a goal. Diversity is part of that. It has been deemed to be fit that we create all kinds of different stuff. Not all of it is successful. I'm talking to you, Dodo. Um, But a lot of it is. And what you want in a, uh, you know, now it's not just about me passing on my genes. It's about humans passing on our genes. And so I think DNA is protective. It wants to live. It wants to be infinitely permanent. It wants to persist. I know that's all completely anthropomorphic and we can't say that DNA wants anything. But why would life happen only to die. There's a lot going on. There's a lot involved. There's a lot invested in this thing. And so why, what is another way to ensure that my kid makes it beyond my death? Well, that's to have other people help. So along with sexual reproduction demands a loving, communal, interactive, cooperative society. I can't see how you look at it any other way. Plenty of people do. We're certainly in a world today that favors more selfish individualism um, and, you know, screw everybody else kind of thing. But if you really think about the whys, and not even the whys, but the what happened, these things happened in, the, in these, this order. And 
If you accept that life wants to live, and because we are mortal, all life is mortal, and that DNA is a mechanism of ensuring that life persists by passing itself on or being passed on from individual to individual, I can see where an individualistic, selfish path is a dead end. And there were probably billions of dead ends in evolutionary history. More dead ends than there are species that we have ever been. They didn't make it. I bet a lot of them were more selfish. (laughs) Again, which is why what we see, we can interpret and infer from what we see what happened and why it matters. And that's what I'm trying to do here with sexual reproduction uh, being related to love. That's going to be, you know, I, I, I've sort of talked about this in the past, and, and this, is, this, I hope, explains it uh, more coherently and more specifically, because this is going to be a dominant theme, is that love is part of our culture that has evolved in the same way that, you know, our, 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 our digestive systems have evolved and has the capacity to change in the future. And I think is being changed now in the wrong direction. Like by resisting these critical elements to being human, which are cooperative, you know, community-minded living, and the sharing of our capacity to interpret energy between each other as individuals and and small groups, if we don't do that, if we go against our evolution then we're, you know, we're, we're going to become a dead end, you know? And luckily we have all this information to consult, to help us figure out how to live. And the best part, we did it for hundreds of thousands of years. We've made these mistakes before. We've recovered from these errors. We can do it again. You know, this is a blip. In evolutionary history. We can reorganize, we can remember what we forgot and move forward. Uh, links to all the things I talked about in this episode in the last uh, will be on my website. I appreciate you listening and participating, and I look forward to more. I think um, next week we'll talk a little bit about awareness and consciousness, I think. We'll see what happens. Um, don't hold me to it. This has been episode 117, Sexual Selection and Love. Uh, I'm Chris Bercher, and this is Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. Take it easy.